The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course, and it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. This week, we're speaking again with Nicole Foss. Nicole is an international energy and finance analyst and the co-founder of the website The Automatic Earth, where she writes under the pen name Stonely. The Automatic Earth integrates the complex issues of energy, finance, environmental issues, psychology, population, and international politics so we can better understand why we find ourselves in this state of crisis globally, financially, and what we can do about it. Nicole was previously the editor of the Oil Drum Canada, where she wrote on peak oil and finance, and I've been reading The Automatic Earth for some years and following in particular her specific advice uh, that they write about in their primers. So I highly recommend you go to theautomaticearth.com. And in this conversation, we are focusing on the primer called How to Build a Lifeboat. I connected with Nicole over Skype. She was at home near Wellington, New Zealand. Okay, Nicole, you have a wonderful primer on your website, The Automatic Earth, uh, and it's called How to Build a Lifeboat. Now, you have sort of four points that I'd really like to focus on. The first one in How to Build a Lifeboat is hold no debt. And you talk about inflationary times versus deflationary times. So can you explain why getting out of debt or getting rid of debt, including mortgages, is so important for people at this time? Well, we've lived through a 30-year credit expansion. So we've increased the supply of credit and debt relentlessly for 30 years. It's been growing exponentially. People have been borrowing money because when you borrow money, you can have more in the short term, in the now, than you could if you didn't borrow money. But it means that you're not living within your means. And so you may appear to own a large amount of stuff, you know, a home, a fancy car, uh, all sorts of other things. But actually, the bank owns it. You're in hock to the system if you are in debt. And as long as you can continue to service that debt, then you can get away with it. But what people do when they take on large amounts of debt is they think only in terms of the monthly payment. This Is the monthly payment affordable under my current circumstances with my, my current salary? But those assumptions are very dangerous. Interest rates are at a very historic low. That means that people are acutely vulnerable to even small rises in interest rates. That would make the burden of that debt very much larger very quickly. They're also vulnerable to losing their jobs. Unemployment is rising all through the world. So people's ability to service that debt is going to be extremely constrained in the future compared to what it is now. And this is going to cause a very large problem. And with interest rates, in inflationary times... The, the real rate of interest is always lower, or the, not, yeah, the real rate of interest is always lower than the nominal rate because it's the nominal rate minus inflation. 
So if you have money in the bank in inflationary times, for instance, if you were being paid for the sake of argument 5% and inflation was 2%, your rate of interest would be 3%. In deflationary times, the same equation gives you a very different result. The nominal rate minus negative inflation means you are now adding those numbers. Now the real rate of, of interest is higher than the nominal rate. Now, this means that even if governments cut interest rates to 0% in an attempt to stimulate the economy again, then 0 minus a negative number is still a positive number. This is why Keynes talked about pushing on a piece of string. So you end up in a situation of credit crunch because there's nothing left governments can do in terms of interest rates to, to stimulate uh, further, further growth. Now, when people end up in this position where they cannot service their debt, and not only is the nominal interest rate rising, but the real interest rate is rising at a much faster rate, it just means that people are going to default on their debts right, left, and center. So all those things that you thought you had that actually the bank owned, all of a sudden, the bank is going to take them away from you. And so whatever you thought you had, your equity will be gone because that's what goes first. The debt will still be there. The bankers will come calling for your assets. They will sell those assets for whatever they can get for them, which is probably less than the amount that you owe. And then they will come after you for the difference in places where mortgages are recourse loans, which is most of the world. So you end up in a state where you basically have nothing. You're bankrupt, but you may not even be able to declare bankruptcy depending on whether the, the, the law that allows you to do that currently is still in force. It's getting harder and harder around the world to access bankruptcy protection. If you can no longer access bankruptcy protection, the kinds of consequences to indebtedness that have existed in other times are things like indentured servitude, debtor's prison, and being strong-armed into the military, none of which are attractive options at all. Yeah, all of which are just absolutely horrifying. Like, I yes. just can't. I mean, it's so medieval. Oh, my God. It, it is. But these are things that have happened many, many times in history. The ability to wipe off debts and move on without consequence is is an artifact of modernity. Mm -hmm. We're going to be moving backward in time in, in many ways. And the consequences of debt, the escalating consequences of debt are very much part of that. This is why I advise people all the time to get out of debt if you possibly can, because otherwise there's a sword hanging over your head and you never know when it's going to fall on you. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how renting is a really good possibility. Now, I have a friend who uh, has been in the very fortunate position uh, recently of selling a home in Toronto and moving to the country. And they have purchased a barn. And so they could do some renovations. I mean, so they're mortgage free, but the barn isn't livable right now. So they're sort of wondering, well, you know, should we take on a mortgage and sort of make it our forever amazing house? Or should we be, you know, should we keep some cash on hand? Like, how should we do this? I would love to know <laughs> how you might advise somebody in that position, because I, I remember in an earlier conversation, you said that people who have mortgages that actually have quite a lot of equity, like you've almost paid it off, are actually at a higher risk when the bubble bursts, because the bank could, you know, they would call you on that loan first because there's more to get. So would you suggest that if possible, people divest from 
these large investments and move to renting right now? Or should they like double down and pay it all off right now? Like what, what, what would a person do at this crux? Either option is possible. It's the one in between that doesn't work. Right. So paying, paying it off as much as you can, but still having a mortgage is not really helping you very much. You're sacrificing your cash on hand and you're just making yourself a more attractive target for a margin call on your house. Mm -hmm. If you can pay it all off, if it's the sort of place where you want to stay, where you're perfectly comfortable staying, say you have lots of friends and family, you can grow food there, you have control over the essentials of your own existence through the ownership of this particular property, by all means, pay it all off if you can. You will take a very large loss in financial terms if you do that. You will have overpaid for it, but the compensation will be that you have a place to live and uh, you have control over the essentials of your own existence, and this is a very good thing. There's far more in, in life to consider than simply finance. So if you if you pay it all off, you chain you swap a financial loss for possibly incalculable gains in other ways, which is a good thing. If you are not in a position to do that, you're better off to sell and rent because then you're paying someone else a fee to take the property price risk for you, which is a really good bet. So the property price is no longer your problem. Repairs are no longer your problem. Local taxes are no longer your problem. And that's a very satisfying position to be in. You can still stay in an area where you have social capital, where you have work. But if things go wrong wherever you are, you have the ability to go somewhere else. And this is actually a really, really useful freedom. It may mean you have to move more often than you would like because your landlord might get into trouble with his mortgage. Things can happen. But nevertheless, renting is not a bad option. The costs of renting, if you look at the total costs of ownership and compare that with the cost of renting, renting is not a bad idea. People tend to just compare a mortgage payment with rent, but mortgage payments only depend on the rate of interest, which is currently low and won't be in the future. So even if you only compare mortgages and rent, rent is still going to come out on, on top in the future. And if you compare the total costs of ownership with the total costs of renting, you're going to be much better off if you rent. And there are many non-financial compensations for doing so as well. Mm, okay. So then the second aspect that uh, you highlight in How to Build a Lifeboat is about liquidity. So you say you want to hold cash and cash equivalents, but you also say that you don't want to hold them in the bank. So yes. can you kind of give us a sense of how, like, so what are we supposed to do? How, what, what do we do? Well, essentially, as we, we talked about in uh, the last program, if you have money in the bank or in a brokerage account or, or anything comparable to that, this is an unsecured loan that you've made to the financial system, which it may or may not repay, depending on whether it's in a position to do so. The entire developed world at this point either has or is developing regulations to allow failed banks to be bailed out with the depositor's money, which means that you are at the mercy of the solvency of middlemen, and that's a risk you can't do anything about whatsoever. So don't assume that just because you have money in the bank that it will still be there one day, or especially when you, you need it. There have been many instances in history where there have been systemic banking crises, banks have closed their doors. Keep an eye on what's going on in Greece right now for the effect of capital controls, uh, the most recent uh, instance of capital controls. But this has happened many times before. I fully expect it to happen again. Uh, similarly with brokerage accounts, 
even if you have a customer segregated account, it's not necessarily sufficient protection. For instance, the failure of MF Global in 2011 uh, resulted in the confiscation of the contents of customer segregated accounts, even although they had been fraudulently pledged as collateral for bad bets in Europe by the company. So if you are in that system, what you have is at risk. If you want to control the risks that you face, then you need to control them by having access to what passes for wealth for you personally. So whatever you have that is your store of wealth, including liquidity, you need to control it. Now, the risks that you face are still, there are still risks that are there. There's fire, there's flood, there's theft. But these are risks that you are in a position to control, unlike the risk of the dependency on the solvency of middlemen. So if you are unable to control these risks, you're in a better position you would otherwise be. But you do have to control those risks. Otherwise, you risk losing everything that you have. Mm -hmm. Liquidity can be as difficult to hold on to as it sounds. <laughs> right. How do you decide how much you need? I tend to suggest to people that they try, if they can, to hold a year's worth of liquidity, whatever counts as a year's worth for them. If you can't do that, a few months if you can. Whatever you can manage is better than nothing. Because if you move in a financial crisis into a cash-only economy, which can happen within a week, as it did in Cyprus in uh, March 2013, then you are going to need cash on hand. You're going to need access to something, or you won't be able to get anything out of an ATM. You won't be able to buy anything in a shop. You won't be able to buy anything from a gas pump. And then you will be in trouble in a very short space of time, since most people don't carry supplies of uh, essentials actually on hand. Mm -hmm. So people do need access to a certain amount of liquidity. If you have a, a fair amount of assets, you don't have to be fully liquid because that's putting all your eggs in one basket in the sense of liquidity is difficult to look after. And if you lose it and it's gone, then you have uh, nothing left to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So if you have more assets, then I would suggest a certain amount of liquidity balanced with hard goods, which give you control over the essentials of your own existence. Things like property and tools and warm clothes, um, firewood, supplies, uh, all sorts of things. Um, Solar-powered battery chargers, wind-up radios, all kinds of things that give you the ability to function in the absence of uh, continued influxes of money, shall we say. Right. So then when in that post where you talk about gaining some control over the essentials of your own existence, there that would also... I would imagine include that in the, you know, while you are in the um, planning or preparation stage, you're acquiring these tools, but I would imagine that also includes skills like oh, growing yes. food or first aid or uh, even communication skills, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Skills are, are critical and, and no one can repossess them either. Whether you have money or not, your skills are your own to keep uh, no, no matter what. And that sort of thing is critical. Another thing that's a really adaptive response, if you have the resources to do it, is to look at setting up businesses with local supply chains and local distribution networks. Because then not only are you investing in the real economy in a way that produces a, an income that's much less likely to disappear on you, but you're also altering the fabric of the society in which you live. Because businesses like that are exactly what the rest of the population will need to rely on in order to have access themselves to the essentials of their own existence. So if you, by setting up businesses like that, 
are able to provide goods and services to your local area, then you're providing an essential service. And this is going to be something that can make an absolutely enormous difference. And that gives you the degree of social connection as well that is the best guarantee of security you can possibly have. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that that's like investing in your own social capital. Like you Absolutely. It is. Yeah, so, so very important to have that. Uh, mm the not only f to have the awareness of like who your people are and be connected with with your community but also have them know who you are <laughs> you know like this is this is the gift that i'm going to bring into the heart of the village this is the skill that i bring this is the contribution that i can make now you also talk about being worth more to your employer than she's paying you uh and I, I, I like that. I like that idea. Even as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm always trying to be worth more than what my clients are paying for. Uh, now, entrepreneurship is definitely on the rise. It's certainly something, I mean, I don't have numbers for this, but I, most of the people I know don't have conventional jobs. And even the ones who would like conventional jobs ha are having a very difficult time obtaining one. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> What you just mentioned about uh, local supply chain seems like a, a great entrepreneurial venture. Are there others that you think are really needed that aren't as uh, focused on as much? But for, for people who don't have a job or can't get a job, what would you see as valuable contributions that people will want to pay you for when there's very little money? Things that involve practical skills are the best way to go because those are the things that are very difficult to substitute for. So human skills of all kinds. Uh, so be able to um, mend things, grow things, fix things, and also concentrate on the human skills, like, for instance, your own communication background or mediation, for instance. For instance, if people people are capable of explaining one side's perspective to the other side in a disagreement, then they may be able to prevent the kind of, of uh, dislocation that happens when there's not enough to go around. Because when the pie is shrinking and you have to share the losses, it's very difficult to do that in any way that's perceived to be fair. So if you are an effective mediator and you can help losses be shared in a way that's perceived to be fair, then things will survive that might otherwise not have done. Organizational skills as well knowing how to run uh, local programs for distributing essentials. So not necessarily people paying for essentials, but if you have a rationing system or you have a, a system where where in the aftermath of something happening, whether it's a, a superstorm or an earthquake or a financial crisis, you've got means to hand things out to the people who need them. Skills like that are incredibly important. So Concentrate on the things that matter the most, not the things that involve you being a middleman, not the kind of things that involve sophisticated white collar sorts of, of skills necessarily, but the things that involve getting your hands dirty or the things that involve human skills interacting face to face with your fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. Would you say, Nicole, that you're a very spiritual person? Because I'm just thinking about how much you've had to be how engaged you are on the mental level and also just the physical level. You've traveled the world uh, sharing all this insight and knowledge with so many people. How, what does that do to your spiritual life? 
I'm not quite sure how one would define spiritual in in this kind of sense. I'm not a religious person at all. And so I don't think of things in in that way. I'm interested in connecting with the human spirit in all its manifestations. And I've actually found the last few years to be tremendously rewarding in in that way. I've met tens of thousands of people all over the world, people sharing their enthusiasm and their desire for change, their their desire to do things differently, to move away from creating a planet-killing Ponzi scheme and, and to find better ways of being in the world and to be in the world in together, not just isolating themselves, building a bunker and cutting themselves off from people and peering over parapets. So I've actually found it an incredible experience reaching out to to my fellow man. And that that does nourish me in many ways. I wouldn't put it as to say that it nourishes my soul, perhaps, but but I would say that it's been tremendously nourishing to my sense of who I am as a person and what it's possible for one person to do in this era when we have had the ability for independent voices to reach out and be heard and to potentially make a difference. I would very much like to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm sure you hear it all the time, but yes, yes, you are at the very, I, I don't know what you're hoping to achieve at the um, institutional level or uh, political level, but certainly at the personal level, it's been absolutely life-changing following your work. I, I'm, I'd like to add that I'm not trying to achieve anything at all at the, <laughs> at the political or institutional level, because I regard both of those things as being operating at a scale that will be fundamentally non-functional in the future. So I ignore them in the knowledge that they're going to go away eventually anyway. (laughs) And all real change comes from the bottom up. So I'm not interested in trying to reform a race of dinosaurs. I'm interested in trying to create a race of mammals that have a chance to come up from underneath as the dinosaurs become extinct and achieve something that looks fundamentally different. Okay. So I was going to ask you if, uh, if as uh, resource constraints create more and more autocratic or despotic uh, governments, it, right now in the present moment, do you think voting matters? Honestly, no. I on, I really don't. I don't think it matters who's in the position of, of supposed power, because I don't think our elected leaders are actually where the power lies anyway. I think they're figureheads, and they're the people whose job it is to sell uh, the policies of others to the public. They're spin doctors, essentially. And so I actually think that although we still have the outward appearance of the institutions of democracy, we actually have not had real democracy for a long time. We have one dollar, one vote. We have a system that's bought and paid for by big capital, and I don't involve myself in it uh, hardly at all because I don't see it as being in any way a source of solutions. I don't think it matters who's in power. The same things will happen anyway because the power does not rest with elected office now, in small countries or small political contexts, that may be less true. So, for instance, in, in New Zealand, uh, when there's only four and a half million people, there's a, there's a limit to how um, ridiculously over the top um, a, a national government could get. I mean, this one's about as over the top as it really could be. So it's it's not that it's not possible to be in that same position. But I think in a period of crunch, 
when uh, the existing system is is not operating anymore, there can be a need for something that operates at a national scale in the places that are small. Now, I think that where places are much larger than that, the largest effective organizational scale will be much smaller than national. So certainly in in Canada and the United States, uh, for instance. Now, I think it's critical to notice the connection between trust and effective organizational scale, that where you have trust resting in the institutional framework that trust confers political legitimacy and that political legitimacy confers effective organizational ability, effective governance ability. So the scale that you can operate on and be an effective governance structure right now is quite large. In the future, when the trust horizon is collapsing, the trust will be withdrawn. National and international institutions will become stranded assets from a trust perspective, will no longer enjoy legit political legitimacy as that we're currently seeing in Europe. And then effective organizational scale will get much smaller. I engage now with smaller political entities because those are the ones that are going to be the future of governance in an era where the larger political in, in, entities are, are not really going to be able to function. They'll still be there, but they'll be causing trouble, not providing solutions mostly. Mm -hmm. All the solutions, I think, will come from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Now, human mm -hmm. beings get themselves into trouble every time they operate beyond a certain scale, you end up with something called functional stupidity in uh, Dmitry Orlov's terms, where what happens is you cut off the ability to be reflexive, the ability to learn from one's mistakes. So when the system and the institutions in it get large enough to be beyond that scale, what you get is things happening that are functional in that they keep the system going, but stupid in that they undermine its continued ability to exist and function in the future. And things like that, institutions at that scale are not worth trying to reform. They're fundamentally reformable. So it's important to take a step backward back into the realm or the scale where you can operate in a way that is reflexive, where you have the feedback loop, where you learn from your mistakes, where you can have accountability and transparency and actually function as an effective governance body. So that's the scale that I like to operate at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm keen to vote at my local mayoral level but when it comes to the federal i i feel like my vote is just a almost like a sentimental gesture <laughs> so probably yeah sadly yeah. to say okay so you're just getting on a roll here sister i like it so i would like to bring in the the tour de force that was your contribution to the great debate at the Wellington Sustainable Living Festival? That was Melbourne. Oh, was it Melbourne? Yeah. Yes. In and Australia. In, in February. Australia. And uh, it, it, was, it showed up on your uh, website as a blog post called Sucking Beer Out of the Carpet, which was <laughs> so great. I would like just for you to touch on one aspect of this. Why will the move to renewables not work? Well, what we have is a society built on high energy profit ratio energy sources, which means that the energy ratio is the comparison between the energy you put in and the energy you got out when you are trying to produce energy. So is an, a society built on high energy profit ratio energy sources in the form of conventional fossil fuels. That which you build with ratio energy sources you cannot even maintain with low energy profit ratio energy sources. This unfortunately includes renewables even as it includes unconventional oil and gas. 
Now, it's not that you can't live on, on low energy profit ratio energy sources, but that you can't maintain a society that looks like this one if you do. Once you move into an era of low energy profit ratio energy sources, your society has to simplify. Now, in the case of extremely complex to produce low energy profit ratio energy sources like solar PV or uh, fucking, uh, horizontal drilling, um, mining rare earth metals, all these sorts of things, these are complex activities that rest on the current level of socioeconomic complexity. But the paradox of these um, expecting to move into this kind of era and run our society as we currently do is that it requires a level of complexity that the production of energy from those sources is not able to provide. So you end up in a position where all these complex things become impossible because the, the simpler society that you are moving into is no longer capable of doing them. And that applies to a lot of forms of renewable energy, particularly the ones that go through electricity. But that doesn't mean you can't have a renewable energy-based society. We always did until the Industrial Revolution. But we don't always need to think in terms of electricity. So we should be thinking in terms of thermal energy or motive power, compressed air systems. These are simpler ways of using renewable energy to provide useful effect the kind of things that people did before they did everything through the medium of electricity. Now, the, the comparison you referred to uh, in the title about sucking beer out of the carpet was my way of comparing conventional and unconventional oil and gas, because the analogy I use for that is to say that conventional oil and gas is like going up to the bar, buying yourself another beer and sitting there and drinking it in comfort. Unconventional oil and gas is where the bar is closed and you can't do that anymore, but you're still desperate and you are, are you desperate enough to suck spilled beer out of the carpet? Because that's essentially what you're doing with unconventional oil and gas. You're going to get a mouthful of dirt. It's, you're going to get a very low return on the, the energy you put in to do it. Beer returned on energy invested will be very low and it will be in no way a substitute for what you can no longer have. So people need to understand that the implications of the shift from the one regime to the other, the difference in energy profit ratio is going to make a very large difference to the way society functions. And we are going to have to cope with, with a much, much simpler society that's going to place constraints on us. So what I was trying to do in Melbourne, one of the aspects I was trying to do is to define solution space. So in the, in, as a result of financial crisis, if your proposed solution is capital intensive, it's not going to work. If it depends on a current level of trust and therefore depends on top-down solutions, it's not going to work when the trust horizon is collapsing. If your proposed solution is energy intensive, it's not going to be possible. If your proposed solution depends on current levels of socioeconomic complexity, it's not going to be possible. So I think it's incredibly important to define the boundaries of solution space in order that what we go forward with as solutions are things that are going to be fundamentally workable in the future. So that way we're committing our remaining resources to things that actually have a chance of working rather than throwing them at supposed solutions that we can actually perfectly well see in advance have no chance of working. Right. So that's where the scale comes back down when you're saying, yes. let's let's invest in what actually has a chance. And the fact is that when you do that, you naturally put less pressure on 
the environment, you know, yes. uh, you address the, the concerns about climate change. There's all of these sort of happy other um, uh, effects and sort of side effects that come when we focus on the personal and the urgent of how can we actually decouple from this particular style of economic system that we're in. Um, yes. Yeah. It, okay. So now we're really whipping it up here. I want to ask you, about what you think about near-term human extinction because Carolyn Baker's been on and each show has required some Kleenex because she's been talking about uh, how we face near-term human extinction with a certain measure of um, courage, I suppose, and dignity and perhaps some grace. And you say that you think the, the notion is ridiculous. Please tell me more about that. I would call it a highly, highly implausible. The concept of near-term human extinction by 2030, I, I just regard as absolutely outside the, the boundaries of uh, what's likely to happen. Uh, it's not that human beings will never go extinct, but the thought that human beings are going to go extinct that soon as a result of runaway climate change is is what I regard as, as wildly Im implausible. Yes, there are things that are going on in climate, and there are places where really dire things have happened climate-wise already, but we're simply not going to see changes unfold that quickly. Physical systems do not change that quickly. Financial systems do. This is one of the reasons I focus on financial systems, because they really do change that quickly. And so you really do have to be prepared for it if you're going to weather that storm or to get over that particular hurdle. Now, there are a number of issues with tackling uh, climate change directly. One of the problems I have with encouraging people to look first and foremost at climate is that the kinds of things the larger scale aspects of the system would do under those circumstances are actually all things that would make the problem worse. So things like massive mitigation uh, exercises. So let's build a $6 billion barrage around New York City, for instance. Well, that's a lot of concrete and a lot of emissions. Things like climate uh, sort of carbon trading Ponzi schemes or geoengineering and all of the kinds of things that I think are most plausible as responses to people focusing solely on climate change or institutions, I should say, focusing on, on climate change, if that were to happen, would all be things that would line the pockets of the elites at the same time as causing more of the same problem that we've had before, because every one of them would be reflections of the current system and everything that's wrong with it. So my, my approach to that is very much to deal with it at that personal level and to say, well, let's focus on the things we can actually do something about, which are all the, the very same things you're, that you would do for financial crisis and, and energy issues. And the knock-on effect is the best thing ordinary people can possibly do in climate terms, which is to live lightly on the earth. And, and I think if you do that, the combination of financial collapse and people doing their best to live lightly on the earth is the best case scenario you can hope for in terms of climate. And I don't think for a moment that it is hopeless to do that. I actually take huge issue with people who say it's hopeless. Why would you even bother? I mean, well, not that they say, why would you bother? They say, oh, well, we should do this just for the sake of living with dignity. But the message 
message people will get is, why should I bother? I might as well just keep living the way I am and say goodbye to my children or just ignore the whole thing. It sucks the hope out of everybody that anything can be achieved at all. And it absolutely cuts off at the knees um, the opportunities to go forward in any kind of constructive way. So I actually find that the whole concept of pushing near-term human extinction is fundamentally damaging to efforts to actually achieve anything that, that is truly positive. Now, I do accept that we are, you know, Carolyn Baker's argument about having to accept that which we cannot change and, you know, moving into a future where we're not going to have what we have now and we're going to have a lot to, to grieve over, that's absolutely valid. But I would not cast it in terms of, of near-term human extinction as a result of climate change. I would not, in fact, pin it on, on any one specific circumstance. It's a result of reaching limits to growth in a broad range of ways. And coming to terms with the fact that we are reaching limits to growth and that there will be consequences, I think, is, is a very important aspect. It's just that pinning it to that specific scenario that is, the, I think, the worst case combination of destroying uh, people's incentive to do something and, and sucking hope out of them while resting on what I regard as horribly flawed science or or a travesty of science, if you like. It, it's, it's a particularly unfortunate combination. I, I look at, at the supposed science behind this and I look at cherry-picking data. I look at distortions. I look at ridiculous extrapolations of totally insufficient data. You know, I, I look at, at ridiculously specific specific scenarios that are not in any way justified by the error bars involved in the scientific processes. I look at the flaws in models that don't include some really important, obvious factors. So I, I just do not like to engage with that kind of scenario at, at all. And I, I find I, I just have huge problems with the, the main proponents of that particular scenario as well. This is, is just so fascinating because you're two women that I follow quite closely. So I love uh, <laughs> coming across an area in which you're so divergent. Um, I, and to be honest with you, I, I don't know which bleak uh, reality I'd rather face, econopocalypse <laughs> or near-term human extinction. I, it's a bit of a crapshoot. It depends on the day. I, but <laughs> I think that if, if you make the kinds of adjustments to life that involve living simply and finding out what makes people truly happy without reliance on a material paradigm to do it, there's no reason that the future has to be bleak. Yes, there will be a whole lot of things that we have to face and, and get over, and we're not going to have the level of material prosperity we have, but that's not what makes people happy anyway. Mm -hmm. And what makes people happy is connection. And people have been happy under an extraordinary array of circumstances when it comes to, to access to material things. So I, I don't really see the future as being something bleak. If if I thought that everything was hopeless and that everything was just going to be irredeemably bleak, then I might have just gone and hidden under a rock or something rather than trying to get out in the world and, and change things. It's because I have a fundamental degree of optimism that that important things can be different, at least in at a small scale in, in areas where people make that change happen. Mm -hmm. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing what I do now. And so I do have that sense that, that change is possible, not global level change, but change at a local level in ways
piece that fundamentally matters. I, yeah, that's why my husband, his work, my husband's website is smallanddeliciouslife.com. And that's the hashtag we use because uh, to be honest, it doesn't matter which one of the bleak uh, futures we're facing. The we, we both really feel all we need is some, you know, salami we've made ourselves, some tomatoes from our own plants, some cocktails that we've whipped up together and uh, a nice little view for picnic. That's, it doesn't <laughs> matter what's going on either way. So here's the last question. Here's the scenario, Nicole. You are literally in a lifeboat and you are adrift, uh, but you are paddling, you think, towards an island. Uh, you're pretty sure there's some, it, it's well-resourced. There's clean water, uh, there's, you know, wood, there's uh, different kinds of flora and fauna that are edible. It's, it's a hospitable environment. And you are going to uh, create uh, a life a, a little bit of an oasis after the econopocalypse. Who are the three people you want to start over with? And who do you want in that lifeboat? And they could be living dead any, t any period of history. I'm not sure I could really give you an answer to that one because it would be impossible to choose. There are so many people living in dead. I have three children, for instance. <laughs> you know, you know, it really is not possible to to come up with with a a realistic answer to that unfortunately and it's a shame but there are so many people that i would really want to share my future with for so many different reasons and i'm not so much thinking of you know people who may have lived in the past who might have been interesting to talk to but real living breathing people who i know today and it I'm not sure that any kind of life with only three other people would do. <laughs> okay, well, let me narrow it for you. So first of all, fortunately, you don't have to answer in a realistic way because it's just a totally hypothetical question. Let's say there are three other writers. Let's say writers in particular, because they're going to be interesting. They're going to be thoughtful and well-spoken, and they're going to know how to drink. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> so who are the three writers you would like to uh, kickstart some new civilization with in your lifeboat? And, you know, in this particular area, so listeners will get a sense of who your influences are, who you're interested in. Uh, and, you know, like I'm the kind of person who at the, when I read a really good book, what I really want to do is then read all the books that are in the bibliography and the footnotes. So who are the three writers that our listeners should, uh, should uh, check in and uh, read up on? Well, of course, I would have to start that list with my writing partner, uh, Ilargi, at The Automatic Earth, who's an absolutely passionate polemicist on the human condition. And we've been hanging around for 10 years already, so I already know that we could share a desert island and not kill each other. So that's that's probably a, a good start. <laughs> but in terms of other writers, there are so many. I mean, I've, I've found I've been tremendously interested in Bob Prechter's work in, in finance and you know Nate Hagen's in terms of energy and the big picture and, and human psychology. Um, John Michael Greer is, is a fascinating writer, again, extremely perceptive of the human condition. Uh, Thomas Homer Dixon is an excellent interdisciplinary big picture person. And there are simply so many others. And uh, Chris Hedges is a tremendously you know, passionate, 
courageous writer about looking at what happens with uh, the move in society towards totalitarianism. I mean, there have been influences just too numerous to count. And I'm sure that uh, doing this off the top of my head, I'm forgetting some pretty important ones. <laughs> but that's that's always the way it is when, when you just have to answer something just right then that's and there. Right. Well, I really appreciate that list. And I know about half of them, but I'm definitely going to uh, get a Google in after this. Uh, I really want to thank you for spending so much time and sharing so generously. And uh, as I said, you know, you may not be intending to achieve much at a, a at a great level or a high level or large scale, but the impact you're having at the personal scale is immense and immeasurable, certainly in, in my life alone. So thank you very much for the work you're doing in the world. And thanks for being on the Numinous Podcast, Nicole. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Remember when we were talking about social capital and offering what you can in the midst of collapse, whatever your skill is, whether it's communication and what have you, that's what Nicole just did for us. So if you got any value out of this show at all, please go to theautomaticearth.com and throw some money in the tip jar. They are completely funded by donation and you can donate just on the left hand side of the screen. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. In particular, I'd like to thank my listeners in Ontario, Canada, specifically Sarah and Ryan. I wish you the best of luck with your barn. As Nicole said, you can divest it or you can pay it off entirely and be debt free. It's the option in the middle that doesn't work. So I hope that was helpful for you today. And for all of today's show notes, you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And just click the link for the podcast. And that's also where you'll find information about becoming a patron. And finally, to ensure you never miss an episode, sign up to receive notifications at the bottom of my site. Until next time, take care.